2015 interview between Kendrick Lamar and Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones says, the last two things to leave this planet will be water and music. I was just like watching this and I heard that and just immediately clicked with me. Like it's been called a universal language for a reason. I liked that concept of kind of always having that at the center, even of like conversations about the business side. In this episode, I talked to Sherry Hu. Sherry is an entrepreneur, journalist, writer, and she writes about the intersection between music and technology. So she has this popular newsletter and community called Water and Music, and we have a lot of fun talking about how she grew the newsletter, her journey from piano performance through to math and then into journalism. Uh, We spent a lot of time in this episode actually on uh, some trends in the industry, not just uh, crypto and things like that, but also uh, Spotify and podcasts and how the the world of music and podcasts and newsletters is all intertwined. Uh, it's a fun episode. There's a little less in like hard hitting tactics of like do this next to the newsletter and a lot more on this is what's going on in the industry and what you should pay attention to. So those are some of my favorite episodes and this one uh, is pretty great. So let's dive in. Sherry, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. All right. So I want to start with your love for music and the music industry. Where did that where did that come from? Uh, you have a uh, you went to Juilliard for piano performance. Like, tell me more about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that it's like almost feels like like a past life at this point. So uh, I guess to to be like more specific about that, I did the uh, Juilliard pre college program. So it's a like yeah, it's like a kind of weekend program at the conservatory. Um, I did that throughout high school where I would like go to Juilliard, like to the city on Saturdays, do private lessons, have classes in like music theory, chamber music, et cetera. Um, yeah. And that, that was my path for a while to just go to conservatory for, uh, piano and like study that and, uh, be like, you know, full-time performing pianist, ideally very, very different from what I do now, but, um, still very near and dear to me. A lot of, you know, like my closest friends, um, I kind of made in that environment, very intense, but fun environment. So I guess my yeah first and most intense um, involvement growing up with music was definitely on the performing and on the creative side. Um, at the same time, academically, I was really into math and like I was on the math team, did math competitions in school, and I ended up um, majoring in stats in college, like taking a lot of math and stats classes, but at the same time, a lot of music classes and from a very early stage trying to think about where those two worlds intersected. So because I was, I guess, more like a performer initially, I was thinking about like applying math to music theory. I think that's still a really interesting like application area. Um, and I didn't even, so I guess also in spite of learning, uh, like studying piano for like 10 to 15 years, I, I wasn't even aware of just the scope of what the music industry involved in terms of like the jobs that were possible, the new kinds of jobs that were emerging until I would say 2013, 2014, um, that's when I had the opportunity just, you know, to explore um, this career path uh, to do uh, a two week, a two to three week shadowing experience at Interscope. Um, and it was with their A&R team. Um, I, yeah, in terms of like actual like tasks, I didn't do that much because it was a short amount of time, but just that experience opened my mind even to things like, uh, or questions like, what is A&R? Like, I didn't really know what that was before, like really being in the middle of it. Um, and also at that time, um, streaming had been around for a while, but I think that period of time was really when like Spotify had just launched in the US and was really starting to pick up. Um, Apple Music would launch, you know, just a year or two later. So the whole conversation around like who the main players were in streaming was also changing pretty drastically at that time. So timing also plays a huge role in, I guess, my journey to where, uh, where I got to now. So kind of through that, I realized I was interested in maybe applying like my academic interests on the stats side to more of a data analyst uh, or like data facing role um, in the music industry, whether that's at a label, streaming service, music startup, um, et cetera. So did a handful of internships kind of in that world, did some academic research on uh, like the music business from a tech perspective. So especially looking at music startups um, and then super randomly at a career fair that my friend dragged me to, I uh, very serendipitously ran into my first freelance gig. Um, I happened to meet 
uh, an editor at Forbes uh, there. His name is Zach Greenberg. He um, runs the entertainment coverage at Forbes. And he just happened to be looking for more music and tech uh, contributors and like columnists for their entertainment section. Um, writing, so this whole journey, writing was never like in the plan. I, I liked writing on the side for fun. I like had a blog that I would, you know, like update for free occasionally, but I knew nothing about, you know, freelance writing, freelance journalism, let alone, you know, newsletters, that that whole world. Um, but yeah, like, like very fortunately, I think just my interests and my experience aligned really well with this um, random but really great opportunity to write about music and tech um, for Forbes. So yeah, very that was my junior year in college. Very fortunately, I like that was kind of my way of diving headfirst into this world of writing. Um, and and but very quickly, I realized that writing is probably like personally my favorite, and I also think generally a really powerful um, outlet for especially packing sorry unpacking a lot of really complicated issues in music and tech. Like I was noticing at the time, um, in terms of like deeper analysis about what was happening in the music and tech worlds. Um, there, it, it was mostly just kind of like one-off news bites and headlines, not so much kind of deeper, um, yeah, breakdowns of like the, the, the trends that were happening. So I decided to make that kind of my beat, like more like, you know, you know, deeper analysis of everything under the music and tech umbrella. So that could either be, you know, the biggest tech companies like Spotify or Apple or the like, you know, latest emerging startups. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've just like fell in love with the writing process, um, and I've stuck with it ever since. Um, and yeah, I can talk more if that's of interest of kind of how I shifted from that to what I do now, which is uh, less freelancing and now like running my own newsletter full time. Yeah, well, I think that's great. I didn't expect uh, stats to be in there, like in the music to writing transition. Like I knew about, I guess, the beginning and the end of that arc. <laughs> I didn't realize that <laughs> you know, math and stats and all that was was in the middle. Um, is there an element of that 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 still, I don't know, that, that you still use? Or is that sort of like, you know, that is, was a phase of life or a phase of college that you've uh, entirely moved on from? Uh, yeah, I, I think in, on, in, a, in a more abstract way, there definitely are um, things that I've like learned or just like a more like quantitative mindset, definitely learning not to take like a given piece of data at face value. Um, even like, yeah, like very simple things like understanding, uh, be like correlations, expected values, like in, in the context of, yeah, like understanding, uh, yeah, anything from like streaming to ticketing data, um, it can be super valuable. Yeah, I, I usually don't do kind of more like in-depth, like hard coding, like data journalism. I've done a handful of those kinds of projects early on, on the side. Um, I would say, yeah, most of what I do is, uh, I guess like more like holistic, like business reporting um, or like business analysis, but uh, yeah, definitely just the the mindset and the training to, um, especially for like uh, a theoretical math proof, like you might not necessarily connect that to the experience of <laughs> writing an article, but just like right. the training that that experience gives you to like really uh, have a sharp lens for like any loopholes in logic, for example, like, um, oh, this argument, like, doesn't really make sense. Like, why are they either skipping all of these steps or... Um, yeah, I, I find like it, not just in music, but in a lot of like business writing, a lot of people will make, you know, like just unfounded claims about anything and uh, people will kind of accept it as truth. So just just that training to like really, you know, dig deeper into the actual reality of what's happening um, quantitatively or qualitatively. I think that's really healthy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, all of those things end up serving people so much. Like we have a team member. Um, uh, who runs all of our, he's an engineer, his name's Mark, who working on ConvertKit runs all of our onboarding and, and uh, like builds out those processes for like the first run experience. You dig into his story and he's like got a degree in psychology and then he turns to marketing and then programming and all of this. And you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how all of those things like affect how you show up at work and why you're so damn good at mm. what you do, you know? Mm. <laughs> but then you like... Yeah don't realize that he, he did not follow a traditional path like you know like college mm -hmm. computer science and then now i'm a programmer you know it's mm -hmm. like this whole arc and it it makes for some really interesting viewpoints on the world like you know how you approach problems and all that so i can see that showing up a lot in your writing mm. thank you yeah i'm glad yeah i'm definitely glad that you pick up on that uh i think uh and this is something that I, i've definitely seen thrive in the world of um newsletters or like niche media generally like be not being afraid to 
uh, I guess also not only focus on a specific beat, but also look outside of your beat for inspiration. Like I uh, love diving into, and I think the music industry should do more of, you know, for example, studying lessons and takeaways from um, the media world or from gaming or from film. Like there's so many opportunities for just like cross collaboration, mutual learning um, that I think is yeah definitely like under reported or kind of undercovered in uh, media currently. So yeah, definitely in part, large part because of my upbringing and like really embracing that interdisciplinary nature. Yeah, I'm yeah. So I'm 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 really glad to hear that it's 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 come out in my work. Yeah, well, maybe take us through you know so starting freelance writing, um, you know contributing for Forbes. Um, where does that go from from there through to running water and music now? Yeah, so after college, this is um, around 2017, fall 2017, I uh, was very fortunate. And this is also a piece of advice that I would give to people who are interested in freelancing is um, whenever possible, try to have um, a small number of like regular anchor clients or like publications you write for. So I uh, was very fortunate not only to have this you know ongoing Forbes gig, but also uh, Billboard at the time was looking for more tech coverage. So I was able to write a lot of tech articles for them. Um, I had it, uh, uh, sorry, I had a column for, for music business worldwide as well, another trade publication, um, based in the UK. And I did do kind of like one-off pitches for other music and entertainment publications, but I would say those first three were definitely like my anchor, um, clients. And yeah, fortunately I was able to sustain myself on that for around two years. Um, yeah, like very fortunately wasn't just like, you know, try to just grasp at straws or anything. So yeah, it's pretty regular cadence of like this freelanced a very specific, you know, industry-facing tech coverage. At the same time, I, I did have um, a newsletter that I started on the side. Um, initially, I used the platform Review, which just got acquired by Twitter this year. Um, and I wasn't planning on monetizing it. It was just a way uh, to aggregate my freelance work elsewhere. Um, and this is actually a point where I was, I was inspired by my reporting on the music industry and, um, you know, talking with especially independent artists um, and hearing over and over again the importance of owning the, the kind of relationship you have with your audience or with your fans, um, which is harder to do on, on social media platforms. I guess in my case, uh, as a freelancer, I was, ha- I was getting access to, you know, these uh, huge, you know, legacy institutional publications, um, audiences that they built over years, if not decades. But of course, I didn't own that. Uh, the brand, the company owned that. So from an early stage, I, I did realize the importance of, um, owning, I guess, like my audience or having, uh, at least some kind of direct outlet, um, to, you know, to my readers to give them a direct channel to me as well. Um, even just like having that newsletter, which, yeah, was like a regular digest of my articles from elsewhere, um, was a really interesting, like channel for sourcing. Like I definitely heard from people in the music industry who I would not have heard from, like, yeah, who I would not have heard from otherwise, whom like PR people would not have, I guess, like, uh, served or, like, pitched to me otherwise. So uh, definitely, yeah, grateful for that. But again, was not really thinking about it um, as a business at the time. Yeah, and growing that newsletter, um, were you able to have, like, the in your byline, go when you're writing for Forbes or Billboard, were you able to have a link off to your newsletter and grow that So uh, I think as of now, it still totally depends on the publication. So uh, with Forbes, you are able to customize your bio, um, Forbes has a lot of contributors also who do have full-time jobs elsewhere. So right. yeah, they, they're have pretty flexible policy of yeah, like sharing links to their company or like their other ventures. Um, with certain other publications, uh, it's not possible or it's like you have to go through a lot of like hurdles to even right. like customize your bio. Yeah, so it really does depend. Um, with the exception of Forbes, I do think uh, other, uh, sorry. Yeah, with the exception of Forbes, I think it's mostly like smaller publications or like publications with smaller teams that are actually yeah. yeah more lenient with that, um, but yeah. So I did get a lot of traffic from from Forbes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I remember. Um, I'm trying to think who it is. If it's, I I want to say it's Greg Eisenberg, but it might be somebody else entirely because I'm like attributing a random tweet that I read. He was basically mm-hmm. talking about you know all this time spent as a journalist writing for a particular publication, and you know like 50 million page views on his articles over five years or 10 years or whatever. And then going like, but I didn't have a newsletter, you know, I didn't Mm -hmm. have a way. And he referenced it. He was like, that is your pension. Like as a journalist, you know, your Mm -hmm. retirement plan, your whatever else, the thing that you're building is like that audience that you're able to link off to. And so 
Um, and I mean, that's kind of how it, like you weren't full-time for any of these one, like any one mm -hmm. publication, mm -hmm. but you know, each thing that you wrote, you got paid for the article and then you're also able to get a little bit more of an audience, which yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. allowed you to go, go out on your own. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. And so, yeah, for the few publications, exactly like Forbes that where I was able to kind of customize and push the newsletter um, or I guess. So also, I guess, uh, yeah, another tipping point in terms of the transition to now running my own newsletter um, was starting to treat this newsletter not just as like an aggregation of other articles, but as a source of original analysis for me. So right. I would say like, uh, yeah, also around 2017, I started treating the newsletter more seriously as a place where you could, uh, I guess, yeah, as an original, you know, primary source for a lot of, especially my more like futuristic or like weird ideas about music and tech that might not otherwise necessarily fit neatly within these other publications I was writing for. I definitely treated it as a sandbox um, in that sense. And I actually saw a lot more growth um, than previously once I started making that shift to like right. taking, like spent, like I guess dedicating time to um, yeah, treating the newsletter as the source of original analysis. And so I kind of, yeah, did that for um, around like a year, year and a half. And it grew to a point um, where there was an established, um, I wouldn't say community, but definitely like audience and readership um, at that time of, you know, people who were interested enough in music and tech to like opt in to stay subscribed to these kinds of ideas. I was like, oh, maybe there is something here. Um, maybe I can try, you know, I, yeah, I'd like interviewed a lot of artists who, um, how to use Patreon and succeeded with it. Um, and I hadn't actually seen a lot of other writers take advantage of the platform. So I was like, oh, maybe there's a yeah place for like, I, this is a community that I would want also as someone who's really interested in and like passionate about these topics. So uh, February, 2019 was a month that I decided to uh, launch the Patreon page. From there, it still did take um, a good part of a year uh, with that and also like I didn't want to like get rid of all my freelance income overnight I didn't think that was a yeah. <laughs> sound business decision um, so I still like yeah kept that up for a good part of a year um, and then the, the timing is surreal and, like a bit strange to think about because it was um, like February 2020 so like right before the pandemic you know changed the whole world and just uprooted everything um, when I was actually able to make the switch to uh, work on my newsletter full-time or like make the equivalent of a full-time income um, from nice. Patreon income. Um, yeah, which it's, yeah, super fortunate to be in that position. And yeah, it's grown, thankfully, a lot in the last year. I think as uh, people, especially in the music industry, have woken up to the importance of not, not just tech generally, but also being willing to experiment because there was like no stand in the pandemic, there's like no standard, no rule for like what right. did, like what would or would not work because like everyone was just, like you know the live music industry was obliterated um a lot of artists just like lost you know the vast majority of their income um and i think a lot of people in that environment yeah we're much more open to new kinds of solutions um especially in tech for just you know connecting with fans online um let alone earning an income so yeah very grateful to be to have been in that position to like help guide people through um this chaos and yeah, so I guess like a year, fast forward a year later, I just brought on two um, part-time people to help. So now I'm thinking about hiring. That's a whole other, mm -hmm. you know, question yeah. and learning curve that you of course have, have gone through as well. Um, that, yeah, like kind of how to grow from just being like a solo newsletter operator to, you know, building a wider brand where multiple people can contribute, still figuring that out in real time. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of the next phase of, of water music this year. I like it. That's fun. Um, really quick, will you share the the name Water and Music, where that comes from? Oh, yes, of course. So, yeah, initially, you know, on the surface, not related to, like, business at all. So maybe not the best name, but but I like it. Um, it comes from a 2015 interview between Kendrick, sorry, between Kendrick Lamar and Quincy Jones. Um, it was on Hypebeast. I think the interview clip is still available on YouTube. And at the very end... Quincy Jones says the last two things to leave this planet will be water and music. And I was, I was just like, uh, killing time on the internet, like watching, <laughs> I liked both of those. I like both of them as artists, um, as people. And I just was watching this and I heard that and just immediately clicked with me. Like, you know, personally, that's, that's how I connect to music in terms of like the, the value it has in my life. And 
the role it plays in my life. Um, in hindsight, there are also if you like really want to dig deep, there are a lot of um, like similar or parallel um, words or like uh, similar vocabulary with water and music, like waves and uh, flow. I've I've been like trying to make a list of <laughs> those like like puns related to water music. So yeah, it, it, on many layers, there are a lot of similarities be- between the two. Um, yeah, and I just I I liked that concept of you know always like centering music. Um, yeah as just something that so many people love around the world. It's been called a universal language for a reason. Um, kind of always having that at the center, even of like conversations about the business side. Yeah, I like it. Do you get people who get the reference right away or? Like, uh, no, that's what you're I also think Quincy has only said this in two interviews that I've seen. So which <laughs> like, probably, probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna yeah. reach out to his team. Be like, hey, can you get him to say this a little bit more? Because yeah. every time he says it, it'll give us a little brand boost. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'd love to to throw some numbers in there. So if we go back to, I guess it'd be uh, when you launched the Patreon. Like, how many subscribers did you have? And then on you know on the the free side of the email list, and then like what revenue did did you get over the next like thirty days or so? Oh gosh. So 30, okay. The first 30 days, um, was not that much at all. And I guess also for more context. So the Patreon page in terms of how I've communicated, um, it's value to people has also changed pretty significantly between like 2019 and also 2020 through now. So when I started in 2019, um, I was yeah still mostly a freelancer. People subscribed to my newsletter because they wanted to, to connect to me, the individual, not so much like water and music as a brand. Right. Um, and so I launched the Patreon page the same way that I think a lot of um, artists, other artists or like writers, creators do on Patreon, um, which was as as a more altruistic way for people to support my work um, if they wanted to. And then as, as part of that, they would get access to, you know, this more exclusive community. Uh, you know, there's a Discord server integrated with the Patreon membership as a lot of, you know, other creators do on, on that platform. But yeah, but the framing was, you know, if, if you're able to, um, we're really grateful if you, if you could support my work. I'll like maybe write some exclusive like articles, share some exclusive thoughts uh, for members only, um, and you could be part of this community. And so, within thirty days, I so the the free tier at the time was um, not more. It was around like five thousand, like four thousand, five thousand. So like not decent, but not yeah, um, but still, still pretty small. Within the first 30 days, it was not that much at all because I, I don't think I like marketed it well because I guess that wasn't my goal necessarily. It was just like, you know, here's a channel that's available if, if you do want to and are able to support. So it must have been definitely on sub 100 people in the first 30 days. So as far as conversion rates go, uh, not very good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, again, like at the time, I, I hadn't really like settled on uh, you know, water music as a standalone brand. I think it was just, just kind of like testing the waters. Um, by the end of year one, um, and I I also published a, like a free recap um, of kind of my first year on Patreon on LinkedIn, uh, which I think if you search for that on LinkedIn with my name, you should be able to find it. Um, but by year, end of year one, I think I had um, 250 paying subscribers, um, or I guess paying members is, is a term that. Um, and the price point there started at three dollars and and like you've what were the different price points at the time because now mm-hmm. it's like three dollars ten dollars and fifteen right so it was three dollars uh which is the base price just gave you base community access um seven dollars uh which is still like the main definitely the most popular tier today gives you access to uh like exclusive articles um and also like now i do a lot of like research and gathering a lot of data so access to kind of like research products underwater music um I, uh, this process has been a bit delayed because of the pandemic, but I'm also writing a book on the side um, about yes. the concept of artists as entrepreneurs. And so there's a $15 tier, $15 a month tier that also gives you access to, um, I guess like, uh, like yeah, book research or like drafting updates. Um, I kind of think of that as a kind of book advance um, on the side that's like crowdsourced. And then um, at the time I did have a tier, which I actually don't, um, have any more and I can like talk through my thinking about that. I had a $200 a month tier that um, 
was basically a way to fund like hourly consultations is how I thought about it okay. um, through Patreon. Yeah. So people who subscribe, who join that tier um, could have an hour long call with me every month um, if they wanted to and just talk about uh, it was a lot of like startup founders, also people in the music industry who just wanted to um, yeah, just like get more of my thoughts directly one on one on a specific music and tech trend. Um, so, yeah, I, I did keep that tier um, on for a good part of a year as water music and like the value, I think, of why people subscribe to the Patreon page has shifted from like a more altruistic uh, and like very individual focused uh, like source of value. Like I'm subscribing and I'm paying for access to like Sherry specifically to um, more like a. And so I think this is like maybe not the most um, uh, like positive term, but I think it is like the right way to think about it, like self-serving on the part of the reader. Like people are now paying for water music membership um, because they want to get smarter about music and tech and they want to like learn more insights on music and tech. It's more for their own growth um, as opposed to like more altruistic. Um, oh, I guess the, the term I used in my recap is utilitarian. Like it's a utilitarian um community driven but still utilitarian kind of um you know reason to pay um as that shift happened having like a direct consultation tier that was very much tied to me uh didn't really make sense there was some, some kind of like clash with um kind of the branding and the ethos there of water music so i don't have that anymore but now i do have um in place of that a lot of higher tiers for group subscription uh group subscriptions and group memberships so there are a handful of uh, yeah companies in the music and tech worlds that have come on uh, for like discounted uh, group memberships, um, which which is really great. Great to have more people on board. Also, it's definitely easier to handle from like an accounting perspective. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, so now like this, it's like now the tiers are from three dollars a month, which is still the lowest one, to um, like a hundred, hundred twenty dollars a month. But those are for uh, larger groups of people. Yeah, I like it. Um... And so then, like, how many subscribers do you have on the newsletter now? So, uh, I I guess as of recording this, I haven't um, published the, like, free tier in a while. I'm definitely focused on, uh, like, really honing the, the paid, paid member experience. Yeah, so yeah. there are uh, around 1,600 paying members um, on nice. uh, through the Patreon membership right now. Uh, vast majority of them are also in Discord server, um, but not all of them. And yeah, they're all, uh, I think that also represents the kind of paid newsletter size as well. The free tier right now, um, as of like the last time that I sent out an email, um, it went out to 12,000 people. Um, And so I do want, I am going to revamp it and relaunch it this year. Um, But yeah, I guess I think the paid tier is probably the most accurate or reliable uh, kind of signal of how big the community is just based on where most of my activity is right now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And and we had done like you and I met from uh, when ConvertKit acquired FanBridge and then mm-hmm. I came to, and we did a live Q&A on the Discord server, which was really fun because there's just a ton of people really engaged. And, and I think when it comes to newsletters and all that, people pay attention to like the total count and they're like, oh, um, you know, 2,000 is bigger than 1,000. And, and mm. you know, we like count up from there, but we don't ever think about like, let's say you were doing a piano performance in front of, 1600 people like that is like that fills a really good size yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so people are like oh that like i only have a thousand people on my list or or even if someone says like i only have ten thousand people on my list i'm like that's like a third of a football yeah, stadium that's you good know? <laughs> that's a really good number yeah that's a lot of people so i love that you have the the smaller paid group that you're especially investing in mm-hmm. um but then i'm curious about is why you chose that model instead of say another model of um, monetization, say like um, courses or, or books or like one-time sale products mm. uh, or even like sponsorships, you know, or did you explore other models um, before settling on membership? Uh, yeah. Interesting question. I think at the time I um, settled on membership just because that I think was the best model for, also, yeah, I guess in the immediate context of launching the Patreon page for people who wanted to support a writer or creator directly, um, I think having that like more regular, I was also thinking about, you know, as opposed to how freelance writing normally works and how writers normally get checks, like having a more 
much more regular, predictable source of income. I definitely like that about just the subscription slash membership model in general. That's why I went with that. Um, I have seen, and again, this is not like a music specific issue, but um, a lot of the biggest like trade publications, um, there are probably certain things that they can or cannot write about because of who their biggest advertisers are. Um, right. I think it's definitely you know common knowledge, and it's it's like a tricky situation, especially with like trade publications. I think um, across business, and I just didn't want to get into that like situation, into that conflict of interest. So um, I decided to yeah like like just keep everything like ad free for as long as I can. The one um, area where I probably would want to bring in a sponsor in the future um, is for in-person events. I think it makes a ton of sense to have a sponsor either like hosted at their office or um, like pay for drinks, food, catering, um, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that totally makes sense. So I probably will look more into that in the future. But um, yeah, as of right now, I was just looking for kind of the simplest, easiest to understand, easiest to handle, like regular predictable source of revenue and the monthly um, subscription slash membership model made the most sense to me. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, as you've been writing about tech and music and the intersection of those those worlds, what are some of the most interesting things that you think are happening right now where you're just like, you know, it's the sort of thing that you're out at, at drinks or happy hour with your friends and they're like, okay, you talked about this a lot. And you're like, no, 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 but let me tell you more about it. <laughs> this actually, I went, as of recording this, I went to um, my first industry like dinner slash drinks event in literally a year and a half um yesterday in new york and it was very like jarring to like be in that environment but by oh. far and no surprise like the top the most popular topic of the night was crypto and like the whole hype around nfts like where are music nfts gonna go are they useless like what is actually their purpose in the first place so the world of music NFTs and crypto is particularly interesting to me right now because uh, the music industry has been through this wave of hype before. Um, I remember the very first industry conference I went to, uh, personally, was also the first time I even learned about what blockchain was. This was back in 2015, even earlier stages. Um, And it was a blockchain one-on-one panel, and, and it ended up being a shouting match, essentially, between... Uh, this like representative from like very old school music industry, like from a performing rights organization, didn't want to share any data, very skeptical about blockchain and um, a startup founder who was essentially trying to disrupt that person's company. <laughs> and that like really set the tone in like a, in a maybe, you know, net negative way for just to how the music industry responded to blockchain, how they saw it as a threat. Unfortunately, this is a pattern um, mm-hmm. throughout, you know, the history of music, especially if you look back at piracy, like seeing new tech as a threat, as opposed to, you know, adapting more to it and try to add value to it and then benefiting from it as a result. Yeah, the music industry has historically struggled with that. What I like about the kind of more recent wave of hype, even though, of course, yeah, there's like tons of money being thrown around for, you know, who knows why around these, you know, digital collectible meme, you know, you, you, you name it, these NFTs. Um, is that there's like less focus on how do we get these, uh, you know, very, uh, very large corporations, a lot of bureaucracy to agree to share their data for this blockchain application to, uh, we don't need them. We'll just, you know, start making money ourselves and like create entirely new kinds of markets and economies around art, uh, music, creativity, et cetera. I personally am like much more excited by that. And, and I do think right. that yeah, like bigger music companies are seeing that and being like, uh, it's probably, you know, not a good idea now to like stop this activity, but we do have to think about where our role, like what our role is in this ecosystem and how we, we can add value to that. So yeah, that's definitely like top, top of mind for me currently. Um, something that is, will be really interesting to watch, especially in the next couple of months is how, uh, what role, if at all, technology will play in the return to in-person live shows. Um, probably another one of the big like music tech um, trends or shifts in the last year was uh, the rise of live streaming um, and just mm-hmm. you know the fact that Twitch for example now has a dedicated you know music team that's really flushed out and a whole separate music category um, on their page that um, right. I don't even know if that would have been feasible you know uh, were it not for just the circumstances of the pandemic where a lot of artists were just you know pre- not just performing shows online but also engaging with um, fans online through through live streaming 
Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, one, like, yeah, whether the con whether the concept of a live stream concert um, will still be sustainable as like a standalone business model. There have been so many like startups founded that, um, in my opinion, essentially all offer the same service. I could be wrong, but uh, basically all just allow base ticketing, you know, base like Twitch style interactive live chat for a like uh, I guess for a performance that you watch through a screen. Um, I think a lot of people would agree that is not as compelling um, as, you know, being in a venue in person, you know, being surrounded, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder by all these people who are all, you know, super passionate, excited to see this artist perform on stage. Um, I, yeah, I, I personally am like much more excited about the latter. That said, um, I do understand the importance of accessibility uh, and like, you know, making concerts more available, especially to people where it just might not be feasible for artists to tour there. So um, that's like one thing I'll be watching out for is how, you know, just this uh, unprecedented investment in live streaming um, over the last year, how, if at all, that will carry over um, to, you know, in-person touring, which a lot of artists, promoters, venues, et cetera, are like preparing for right now, especially as cities are reopening. Um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully all that investment will not have been for nothing, um, but, but we'll see. Well, yeah, and that's what, I mean, what we're seeing just on the ConvertKit side, pushing into music and like we were one of those those uh, companies that made some pivots related to the pandemic where like we took our entire events budget and since events were no more and we started running what we called ConvertKit creator sessions, you know, of like booking these artists to do um, highly produced at home performances and like storytelling and, mm. and all that. And like none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic because the artists wouldn't have had the time to do it. They mm. wouldn't have been like, sure, I'll be hired for this. They're like, no, I have like thousands of people in a, mm. <laughs> you know, mm. in a concert hall that I need to go perform for. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that changes. But then, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what, like what will stick around. Mm. You know, it's, it's sort of like the clubhouse. Um, oh, yes. Where, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It rises like crazy because everyone's like, I have nothing to do. Like, it's 10 p.m. The kids are in bed. I've watched everything there is on Netflix. Ooh, who's having an interesting conversation about the future of the music industry oh, wow, on Clubhouse? Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Like, I'm in. You know, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah. Like, sure. Um, and then now, like, if you would tune into some of those sessions, there's nobody in them, mm. right? Because we're all at happy hours. We're mm -hmm. you know, like playing outside. We're you know doing any of that, and so it's it makes me curious what of these things there's so much that changed over the last 14 months and what's going to stick around, you know, and then, and what's going to revert. Uh, do you have any, any take on which things you put in each category? So, yeah, I just thinking about it this week because Spotify um, just like launched their own clubhouse competitor. Yep. Um, they, I guess they'd acquired locker room slash Betty labs, um, which was kind of a, okay. they're developing a niche version of clubhouse, more focused on sports. Yeah, Spotify bought them, relaunched it as Spotify Green Room this week. Um, and I think, so, okay, one one really interesting shift that I have seen Clubhouse make that I don't think will make it uh, easier for them in terms of, like, surviving as a standalone platform is that they seem to be shifting their branding from being an audio-driven social network where, you know, you can lock on to Clubhouse and, you know, meet all these people from all over the world with similar interests who you otherwise would not have met on Twitter or Facebook. Like that was a draw to me early on from that to like a very uh, like programmed top down. I think of it as like a live radio network. So if you think about how they have a whole, like uh, actually both clubhouse and Spotify and um, probably some other companies in your future, they have these creator funds. So they're funding these shows that are going to be happening, you know, programs on a regular basis on the app, um, on Clubhouse also, even just like tiny features like the ability to uh, type in a text chat in real time during a conversation, Clubhouse still doesn't have that. And so it also right. is very, it's a very dramatic difference. Like you're either um, on the Clubhouse stage and you're, you know, like leaning in and you're interacting or you're completely passive. There's no like in between. And I think a lot of the, if you look at like Instagram lives or like Twitch uh, sessions, Twitch chats, like uh, a lot of the entertainment or like social communal value is in that kind of middle ground of interaction, like being able to even like react with an emoji, let alone, you know, like type in a text chat or request, you know, like ask a certain question in text form. So 
and Spotify does have like the kind of text feature, uh, Spotify green room. So, uh, yeah, so I, I am like noticing this, um, this shift towards, yeah, like funding more formal shows, focus on developing IP. I feel like the companies that will, um, succeed the most at that are companies like Spotify that already have that IP. So if you like open the green room app, I opened it yesterday when it, um, first launched. And of course, at the top of my feed was the ringer, which Spotify owns. Um, and they were, you know, recording their like NBA podcast with like Bill Simmons was a guest briefly. So, you know, of course, like Spotify now has that whole, um, I guess has like completely verticalized podcasting, like every step of podcasting within its own company. So it totally makes sense that they'll use Green Room to kind of promote those shows. Um, I do think, so Twitter Spaces, I think is like, has an interesting different territory. I think they have uh, a vision that's more about um, holding audio rooms within specific communities. Like I know they're working on building like a Facebook groups competitor, uh, like on, um, on their own platform. So you can like, uh, host a Twitter spaces chat only for people who follow a certain topic like VC. I think that makes a ton of sense. Discord, um, to their credit, they've had voice chat within like closed communities for several years. Um, and now that they, but they also have like a more, you know, properly staged like Clubhouse clone feature now. Um, so it's just a matter of like other tech companies catching up. So, but for, I guess for those to like sum all this up, um, in those specific models of like, I guess social audio as a uh, communal feature, um, like a way to connect with other people, that is very, it's very, very hard to compete, I think, with um, these bigger social platforms that already own those social graphs. Like try to create a whole new social graph through audio is is really difficult i think clubhouse like really captured lightning in a bottle um like throughout last year and did do that for some people but now you have yeah all these other incumbent companies coming in it's just really hard to compete with that and then for like the the, the like live radio podcast network model um definitely companies that own i i guess spotify is is in a unique position because they both own ip and one of the biggest you know streaming platforms in the world uh for for audio at right. least so they'll probably be the leader in that. But um, Amazon now owns a podcast company. They own Wondery. So it's also like only a matter of time, I think, before um, other like yeah other companies, other streaming services come in and compete for that model. So that's kind of like the two areas that, that I'm seeing like fragmenting right now. Yeah, it's fascinating the amount of money that is coming to play in the space. You know, even I think you see examples of this in acquisitions when like Spotify you know, acquired Joe Rogan's content, mm-hmm. you know, acquired his show and, or I guess just exclusive rights to his show is all mm-hmm. they acquired, but their stock price went up by so much just off of that announcement that it like m- way more than paid for. Yeah. Know? So they were like, <laughs> that was free. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, from a grassroots perspective, there's not really, I guess there's so much money being thrown around that like, I don't know that you can compete with these other platforms because like mm-hmm. Spotify is saying, going to say, this is our platform. Oh yeah. And we're already going to funnel everything mm-hmm. that we have in here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's just fascinating to me. Another thing on the Spotify side that I only recently learned, um, actually from talking to people at Spotify was in their business model and in, in hindsight, this makes perfect sense, but in their business model for music, they pay out substantial fees to the artists, all of that, right? There's all Mm -hmm. kinds of licensing, who owns the masters, Mm -hmm. who owns that individual recording, Mm -hmm. who wrote the song. Oh, you like that, you know, the little bit of money for every stream gets parceled out so many different directions and Mm -hmm. it it can be very complicated. Mm -hmm. And in podcasting, it's very simple. (laughs) You know, in fact, all these podcasters, like a, a podcast stream, like someone who's listening to this episode on Spotify right now is worth just as much to Spotify as like a song stream mm. because they have your attention. They have you paying. Mm. If anything, it's worth more because right. uh, I guess in, yeah, if you're listening to music, then um, I'm actually, I'm not sure about like the actual fine print, but yeah, listen, like they have yeah. to pay exactly like set like 70% of their revenue. Um Right. from music to like rights holders, whereas like podcasting is like a whole separate pool. Yeah. Yeah. And for 
for better or worse, as a podcaster, we're not we're not going like, hey, where's my cut? Mm, mm. You know, because we're like the expectations like you don't get a cut. Mm. You know, you monetize through sponsorships or through your other thing. And so Spotify is sitting back and be like, yeah, yeah, you know, of course you don't get a cut. No one gets it. You know, <laughs> when they're over here and like going, hey, yeah. we just discovered a way better business model. Yeah, yeah, I think the yeah, it's oh gosh, whole other yeah issue. So I yeah, I do think in that sense podcasters are going through an almost like worse version of what um independent artists have gone through in terms of their critique of spotify and like lack of um leverage and yeah kind of like lack of this sense of they are also benefiting from the growth and you know billion dollar valuations of um spotify as a company that said i i do think um kind of on the flip side podcasters right now um could be a blueprint for artists in the future in terms of um, like Spotify, for example, and and also Apple, they're investing in a lot of like direct to podcaster or direct to podcast monetization models like Apple, like they both are working on podcast subscriptions. Apple just launched their, you know, podcast subs- like, uh, like show level subscription model um, this month. And a lot of people in the music industry have been like, one of their biggest critiques of Spotify from the artist perspective is that it really there's like few if any ways for the artist to be able to connect and communicate with fans like that is um not right. the purpose of spotify the purpose is to uh just make it convenient to access all these millions of tracks make it really easy to, to discover artists but not really to strengthen and maximize the value of the artist fan connection um and some people have also joked um in like the water music server oh like what's stopping an artist from just releasing their songs as a paid podcast and like maybe making more royalties <laughs> from that <laughs> probably, oh, probably that. they'll run into <laughs> like if, if they own all their ip if they own all their copyrights they could pull that off if you don't of course like probably run into some kind of licensing issue but um i'm glad those conversations are happening of like um you know just the yeah the model of getting paid um an average of just a fraction of a penny per stream isn't the only way like look at these other creators on the same platform that we rely on every day, they're now able to make um, an income directly from their listeners and supporters. Like why shouldn't there be um, that same option for, for musicians, for artists? So um, I, I think that that awareness of different, you know, models, business models for like on the artist level around streaming, I think are really good, but yeah, to your point um, for, for Spotify, it's podcasts are yeah just an easy way to kind of circumvent <laughs> licensing and, um, really, I think they are trying to become the major label equivalent in podcasting, just in, in how aggressive right. they are about acquiring IP, um, just because it doesn't exist. It's, maybe it's harder for them to create these like direct-to-artist subscription features, for example, in music because they have these relationships with the existing major labels, and they can't really like tarnish that if they want to keep music on their platform. So definitely lots, right. of, lots of layers there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fascinating. We'll see a lot more you know, like the Joe Rogan deal or the ringer, or those sorts mm-hmm. of things really stood out. But now like just the other day, they announced um, the uh, call me daddy podcast. Yeah. I think it's uh, 60 million. Yeah. Is the deal. <laughs> yeah. Just like, that's amazing. There yeah. are startups that have raised crazy amounts of funding that don't sell for $60 yeah. million. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that, that is fascinating. See, let's, let's bring this conversation to the newsletter side of things. Cause in the, we have a lot of the same dynamics happening um, mm-hmm. or like same tensions happening in newsletters between large publications and solo newsletter creators and, and all of that. And like, you're as much in the middle of that world as you are in the, the music side of it. Mm-hmm. So what are you seeing and, and what's your take on it? Yeah. I, oh gosh. Yeah. I think about this all the time. I think there are a lot of parallels. Yeah. Between, I guess thinking also on the, um, so yeah, Sorry to backtrack. So there are multiple like layers you could look at this. Um, a lot of like media companies and music companies face similar uh, challenges with uh, tech and social media platforms, for example, like the the relationship between uh, like media companies and Facebook um, is quite similar to the relationship between like labels and Spotify in terms of that tension of you know who has more power. Uh, this this struggle always with like not be able to control the like context in which you know you um i guess your work is delivered fed to potential readers um, or potential like audience members um 
the fact that Spotify is also even now, you know, creating a an advertising product where artists and labels have to pay to reach certain fans. That is literally a copycat of, you know, these existing social advertising platforms. So lots of parallels on that level. Um, on the individual creator, in this case, like artist or writer level, I actually think in some ways writers, um, uh, the, the individual writer situation is even worse than the music industry. Because I, so even with like the recent, you know, newsletter boom, um, as a freelance writer for income, I feel like you do immediately rely a lot more on these bylines and bigger publications to like make a name for yourself, let alone earn income. I think it's just by nature mm-hmm. of the like freelance um, economy. It's, it's really, really hard to, you know, build a newsletter from the ground up if you don't already have like access to those the bigger audiences somehow. I think that is a reality of, uh, of running a newsletter, especially from scratch. Um, and there is a whole wave now of, um, like freelancers, actually very similar music, like freelance writers, uh, trying to unionize or like collectivize around, you know, also asking for better terms, um, in freelance contracts. Uh, but like a lot of the times, yeah. So not only do you, um, like a lot of writers rely on these bigger, like brand names to, um, earn income, but depending on the publication, you, um, you might not, uh, especially if it's a bigger one, you probably don't own your own IP. Like you're spending hours and hours doing these interviews, writing these articles, but the, um, but the publication ultimately owns them. Uh, I think it's the Washington Post, uh, is like in the middle of a controversy this week, um, as of recording, because they are like making it a lot more difficult for writers to even like talk to, uh, like an agent, a talent agent, if they want to like write a book. So like, uh, I guess that's more in the case of like, um, full-time staff, but it it does translate to freelance contracts, like, you know, the right to use, um, this article you published in like a book they might write later on. So lots of, yeah, parallel issues around like leverage or on like IP ownership. Um, and yes, but so I do think now with, um, with newsletters, I am surprised that there aren't more musicians who uh, like are investing heavily in newsletters in a capacity that is not just like marketing. So like if you subscribe right. Here's to- Here's my way to think. That's exactly. It. Like if you subscribe to, especially more on the label level, like a universal music groups, like newsletters, it's just pure marketing. There's no sense of it being like personal, not even like deeper copy. It's like mostly just images and, and links to, you know, stream a song on Spotify. Um, maybe it's because like not all artists are like comfortable with crafting and like writing these more long form like text experiences, which uh, maybe that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so I, so now I do think in terms of like the newsletter economy of, um, I guess I'm thinking of like Substack being the prime example of these like, you know, individual standout personalities building their own newsletter brands um writers are definitely like leading the way in terms of that like direct to fan you know or direct to reader direct to supporter uh kind of like channels and income than the music industry is right now um but yeah like historically there have been a lot of parallels in terms of issues that that both like creators in both worlds have faced it's interesting what you're talking about because you're you're absolutely right that not very many artists are taking that personal, like behind the scenes, get to know me sort of approach. A lot of small artists will do that. People who are up and coming and getting established. Um, think about artists that are on like ConvertKit's platform that have been on for a while. Even like Tim McGraw, like he's been on our platform for quite a bit and it's still a bit of a push to get them to do more storytelling and less marketing, you know, mm-hmm. and, to make that distinction because they're like, oh, here's a single that's coming out. One thing that they have done is like more behind the scenes video and things like that. Mm. And so like we, it's part of the reason we've built into ConvertKit like native video integrations where you can play it directly in the, mm-hmm. play the video directly mm-hmm. in the email because like talking just with Tim's team, for example, they'll be sitting down to film something big and then they'll be able to get him to film for like five minutes talking directly to fans, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's like, a, okay, we're already here. We've got a studio set up. Like, yeah, I'll record something for the newsletter. Yeah. The example that I'd love to see more of is like Arnold Schwarzenegger runs a ConvertKit newsletter and his is so good. It's like all the behind the scenes and the stories and like answering fan questions. And you're like, why? I don't know. <laughs> what would it take to get Kendrick? to do mm, something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know it would be amazing. 
Like yeah. it would just be phenomenal. So, but that that pivot hasn't happened in music yet. Yes, I guess you mentioned Kendrick specifically. I think he's a great example of an artist who is so revered and respected and is just like so talented um, in like everything he does, but is also very private. Uh, like aside from right. album releases, he will like rarely do interviews. Uh, you know, very lucky to even just get a handful. Um, and yeah, so this is on social medias, Instagram, YouTube, just very like quiet most of the time. Um, and that works for him. I, I do think, yeah, it, it is important for artists and musicians generally to like not let the tech dict, I guess not let tech tell you what to do. Like definitely only invest in right. yeah channels that you're comfortable with that align with like what you're really good at. Um, like, yeah, especially with, I guess, like text based storytelling or more personal storytelling, like newsletters are great. But if you're like not ready to do that, that's fine. Um, you, you don't have to. So um, yeah, I think it's, there, there's a bigger, I guess, trend to unpack in music as well of um, this expectation among a lot of fans that artists are almost like their friend. I, I think this is the, like the impact of social media also extends to like influencer culture. Like, oh, I'm following this influencer on Instagram. I, I saw what she had for breakfast. So clearly I'm, you know, in her circle <laughs> and like, uh, I might as well be his, her, their, you know, their, their friend. Um, and that like requires a lot of openness and vulnerability that maybe, you know, I think certainly not all people, let alone not all artists are comfortable with. Um, but yeah, I would say like the, slow steady rise of newsletters it'll be interesting to see how it like meshes with that trend of just yeah, expecting artists to be a lot more vulnerable and open live streaming certainly um i think like fits into this category as well yeah i think so i i mean the trend will only continue so mm-hmm. and then like as as we've established many times over email is not dead newsletters are right. on yeah of quite, course. <laughs> quite a rise um maybe bringing it back to you know, to water and music and everything that you're doing, what are you looking to next as far as maybe the next milestones for water and music and then how you think about growing to get to those? Like, what are the things that you're doing to grow the audience or grow the revenue? So yeah, next steps. Um, there are a lot of as different moving parts. So um, I guess earlier, I really b- briefly mentioned events. Um, I think that will be mm-hmm. really important. Um, I guess after the pandemic kind of dies down and, Conferences come back, for example, as like an individual freelance writer, conferences were uh, by far like one of the most effective, um, just like marketing, audience building, networking tools for me, um, especially meeting yeah. people uh, in the music industry specifically who, um, whom, yeah, I would not have met otherwise, kind of through more formal like PR interactions or, or interviews. So um, definitely want to invest more in events, especially around those kind of like industry conferences that happen every year. Um, a separate new water and music website is in development. Um, that will definitely be a milestone nice. in terms of being able to have much more control over the reader journey, like the reader experience, making articles. Like I've published, uh, I think over 150 like articles slash posts on the Patreon page at this point, but the search functions on Patreon are not the best. Right. Um, I'll yeah, very open about that. So definitely want to, yeah, the website will definitely help out with that. Um, so that, that'll be a big milestone. Uh, definitely like hiring is like something I'm also like figuring out in real time in terms of what's the best like combination of people to bring on. So right now I would say the three pillars of what water music does, um, is like editorial, like long form editorial analysis, research, very data heavy research, and then, um, community in terms of, you know, our discord server and our hangouts. So, uh, in terms of like hiring, bring on more people to help like manage all those three different parts that like work together. Um, in a really, uh, and sorry, it works good in, in, in a really complimentary way. Um, yep. that'll be a big priority for, uh, this year as well. Um, yeah. And I guess like the only, only other thing that comes to mind and I don't, I haven't like figured out how to like formalize this or structure this, uh, but going back to this notion of interdisciplinary, um, thinking about the future of music and about entertainment, I, I do think, you know, we were just talking about, um, clubhouse and, Spotify, Green Room, and podcasts. Uh, a lot of people might think of that as a podcast story, but it absolutely is a music story as well because it could, you know, like Spotify pushed that feature, like the new app to artists. And I think the music industry could use those kinds of features in really interesting ways. So that's one example, like music and podcasts converging, music and gaming, um, 
of course, I think are, are converging a lot more, especially looking at the last year. So, you know, how to build and expand editorial coverage in a way that reflects that, um, that would probably be in term- more in the form of like hiring more people who are able to like, are, who are experts, not experts, but are like fluent in like multiple areas of entertainment and how they merge together through tech. Very like specific kind of, uh, I guess, niche uh, view on on business, but it's definitely something I want to like take more seriously in the future. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm excited to uh, continue to follow everything you write about the industry and all of that. And for anyone else who wants to do the same, where should they go to follow you online and subscribe to the newsletter? So definitely the best way to learn about what uh, water music and all the different parts of the membership is just to go straight to our Patreon page. Um, it's patreon.com slash water and music uh, and all spelled out. Um, I'm on Twitter at Sherry who C H E R I E H U and numbers four two. Um, you can also find the water music Twitter uh, handles in my bio also. So you can follow the, the, the membership slash newsletter there. Um, and yeah, hopefully you can, uh, hopefully those of you who are listening, some of you can join the Patreon page and you can find me in our discord server as well. Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining and, and, uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you.